Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11 this morning. Mark 11, those first 11 verses. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to us. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, the Bethsage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt, to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer as we ask for God's blessing upon not only its reading, but its preaching as well. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Father, we are once again grateful to sit before your throne this morning to hear your words. Father, we just pray that you would give Pastor Bob clarity of mind to speak the words that you will bring through him. Father, we pray also that each one of us would have ears to hear and a heart that yearns for the words that are about to be spoken. Father, that we might go home, that we might rise early in the morning and pray, sing praises to you. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. And amen. Two main points from this passage this morning. First of all, the, uh, a brief reminder of context. Where are we and what's happening as far as the gospel of Mark itself? And then secondly, a reflection on contrast. So first, a reminder of context. And secondly, a reflection of contrast. Rather interesting the way the Lord through the Spirit Perhaps it's through Peter's recollection and now through Mark's writing that the gospel of Mark is laid out for us. <clears throat> Mark is filled with action. That's why it's taken us so long to get through the book because there are all these separate segments that are taking place and, and Mark's just taking us one after another, after another, after another of events, of these action-filled events of Jesus' ministry. 
the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel covers roughly three years of time. So he's taken 10 chapters that has covered three years of Jesus' ministry. Mark now slows the pace way down. See, and, and sometimes we miss these things. So, sometimes we don't pause long enough to simply look at how the Holy Spirit has laid out a book. Because that, too, is inspiration. It's not just the words of the text. It is the context of the text. It is the style of the text. As I said, Mark has, has been in this rapid motion of events, events, events. Now, he slows way down. It's like we've, we've almost hit, not a pause button, but we're watching everything now in slow motion. It's like in the first 10 chapters, we're watching it at high speed. We're just going through it, okay? Quickly, quickly. We're, we're seeing that what happened, but it's going by at double speed. Now suddenly, Mark slows it down to half speed. The next chapter of Mark 11 through 16 covers one week. Ten chapters cover three years. 11 through 16 cover one week. Now when you think about that, what is Mark saying? What is Peter, if he's the one who gave us the, the background here, because Mark wasn't there at the time. What is the Holy Spirit desiring for us to learn from that? But to breathe deeply and to take in that which is happening here. Oftentimes, these chapters are covered by us in basically one week of the year as well, isn't it? It's usually covered during Passion Week. It's covered in that time period that on church calendars we set aside as Palm Sunday. Okay, and then we have a Monday, we have Good Friday, we have Easter. Okay, and we pack all of that into a week, which is what it took place in. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that, that Mark, rather than giving us, I'm going to pack it all into a paragraph, now pauses and says, no, we need to expand this thing. We need to really slow things down. We need to really look at this. Some of you are, were probably wondering when we sang All Glory, Lord, and Honor. Well, it's not the time of year we sing that song. No, it is the time of year we sing that song. Right? Just as every Christmas song can be sung throughout the year, every Easter song can be sung throughout the year. This gives us, because we're not dealing with the pressure of some fabric uh, out there, some rubric that, that says you've got to cover this all in a week, you know, because we've got this church calendar thing, it gives us the opportunity as well 
pause and to drink deeply of all that transpired and happened that is recorded for us in these chapters. I think that's what the Holy Spirit is doing here in Mark. He wants us to stop and to think over a long period of time about this Passion Week of Christ. So as we come to Mark chapter 11, a very familiar account to most of us in the church, the story of Jesus' triumphal entry, I want us this morning to simply pause and to look at this passage and to note all of the contrasts that are, that are kind of packed into this event. The contrast, the, sort of the, 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 the things that are unexpected. The things that kind of stand apart from one another. That are like, these don't quite fit. But you know, when they make street signs, when they make uh, highway signs, when they make advertising signs, that's the point, isn't it? You, they purposely put those signs out there with contrasting colors so that what? It stands out to us. We, we, we can more easily read the sign. So as we go through this passage this morning, I hope that as we, we stop and think about this in terms of contrast, that it will help us to more clearly see Christ. Let me give you the first contrast that, that comes from these passages. This section. One, the king comes gently. There's the first contrast. The king announcing that he is the king, allowing others to announce that he is the king. The king comes gently. Nothing about our presidents, irregardless of the fact if they're Democrat or Republican these days, is ever done gently. There is so much hoopla when a president comes to a town, isn't there? Now, it's not that this is not without hoopla, but think of how they come. Got all these secret service people. There's people whining. There's people up on buildings with, with machine guns, high-powered rifles. There's all sorts of communications going on. There are cameras everywhere. Oftentimes, when it's some sort of formal dignitary, we have military standing there in their best-dressed uniforms. There's a lot of pomp. There's a lot of ceremony. But notice what happens here. The king, Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, comes so gently comes riding a donkey. This strange way to, in a sense, announce your kingship, isn't it? 
It's, in our minds, this, this is a contrast. A king riding a donkey? We make jokes about donkey. We, we fill our, our comedy with jokes about donkeys and their stubbornness and so on. Why is Jesus coming on a donkey of all things? Where's the white horse? Where's the tank? Where's the armor-plated car? Where's the black limousine? On a donkey. Zechariah 9, verse 9, tells us why. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, riding, riding a donkey. He comes to you gently. This is our king. This is, this is our sovereign, folks. Our sovereign is one who is gentle. Come to me, and I will give you rest. He's not the, the dictator of the world. It's not cruel. It's not harsh. The picture of him coming into Jerusalem on this donkey is a reminder to us the fact that our Christ, our King, is one of great gentleness. But there's something else, isn't there? I, and you, you're probably familiar with the Zechariah passage. That's why I didn't have you turn to it. But one less familiar passage regarding this is found in Genesis chapter 49. And it's interesting how, how often I myself as well have perhaps quoted the first part of this passage, of this text, but not the rest of it. Genesis chapter 49. We're familiar with the first part of 10, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Right? We, we know that. Okay? Prophecy about the coming of Jesus, okay? that he comes out of Judah, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But listen to the rest of what Jacob said. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied. You see the detail that's going on here? Even though this king comes gently, he is in absolute control over every single detail. What cult? Any cult? No. Find the one that's tied. Jacob. He comes. He comes. And that colt that has been tied. 
See, we, we think gentleness in our world and in our society is a sign of weakness. Gentleness is anything but weakness. Gentleness is strength. Gentleness is saying, I have the power to crush, but I am so strong, I withhold the power to crush. I have the force, I have the capability to destroy immediately. But I withhold the power to do so. This is the rule of Christ. Think of all the applications we can go with that. In terms of church, in terms of the home, in terms of family, in terms of Husbands loving their wives. How does Christ love? He loves gently. Does that gentleness show weakness? Not at all. Shows forth the strength of Christ. He is in absolute control of these events. That's the contrast though, right? The king comes gently. Second, the meek accepts praise. Isn't it kind of interesting when you turn to this account? Here are all these people singing, shouting the praises of Jesus. How often hasn't it been throughout the ministry of Jesus, even in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus has been, shh, keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. Go home, go home. But don't tell anybody. Here, this one who, who we've uncovered throughout the Gospel of Mark, who is so meek, so humble, he doesn't want people out there talking. He doesn't want the crowds shouting. Even when the demons are crying out, even when those who are the farthest and remotest from him as his enemies are crying out his praise, you are the Son of God. Hey, quiet. Enough of that. No more. Here. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed be the one who brings forth the kingdom of David. There's no, shh, hey, hey, come on. Keep it down a little bit. And when the Pharisees step forward and say to him, Jesus, we think you ought to tell your followers to be quiet. What is Jesus' response to them? I tell you that if they're quiet, even the stones themselves will cry out. There is no stopping the praise. There is no stopping the shouting. There is no stopping. Here he is, the meek one that, that we've, we've seen. It's now accepting the praises of these people. He's allowing them to put down their cloaks as he rides his animal upon them. They're waving palm branches at his victory, at his announcement that he is indeed David's royal son, that he is the king. And he accepts it. What a contrast. So that as we begin these last chapters of the Gospel of Mark, 
He knows who he is. He is fully aware of who he is. And he is fully aware of that which is coming. Third contrast. The crowd will dwindle. We see this crowd following. We're given a description of the towns and so on. Some of the other gospel accounts uh, of the triumphal entry build upon that. We know there's a crowd. It's a large crowd. There are a crowd of pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And you get the feeling as you read the accounts in the gospels, everybody's involved in this. As far as the pilgrims are concerned, they're singing, they're shouting. By week's end, all we have left are betrayers, deniers, and those who desert. Jesus will say in Mark chapter 14, 26, you will all fall away. There's going to be one person left on this road. You're all here now, but by the end of the week, they all forsake me. What a contrast, right? You, you would think that at the beginning, if the crowd is there, you would think by the end, the crowd would even be larger. Because he brings forth the kingdom. but instead it dwindles so that there is none left. No one. All will fall away. As we begin this week, as Mark gives it to us in his gospel, he wants us to know where the week's going to end. There's another contrast here. Verse 11. Let me read it again in case you don't have the scripture in front of you. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Does anything strike you as a contrast there? If you were here last Sunday, it ought to, right? Because last Sunday, what happened? He set his face towards Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. Let's go. And, and the whole account is about him going to Jerusalem. What happens? He gets to Jerusalem, looks around, and he leaves. Isn't that a, kind of a strange contrast? Wouldn't you think, if all of this time, if all of this energy, if everything we've been reading about in chapter 10 is he's got his sights on Jerusalem, He's going to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. Well, now he gets there, stays a few minutes, and leaves. Think about it this way. Let, let, let me just put this one before you. Let's suppose that you have never been to the Grand Canyon, the big ditch. Okay? You've never been there. And you have an interest in rocks and rock formations. You've heard about this place, and you just think, Some, I want to visit. So you, you save up, you save up, you save up. Okay? 
Finally, you, you kind of get a little reprieve from your boss, or if you're self-employed, you've set aside some time, and you've arranged the schedule, so you've got a three-week trip. You've got a three-week trip. You're going to get out there in three days, you're going to be back in three days, and you're going to spend the rest of the time at the Grand Canyon. You're going to hike, you're going to explore, you're going to ride the donkeys down. Interesting. I didn't realize how that would fit. Okay? Ride the donkeys down, you're going to raft it, you're going you're to take on the whole experience. You're going to do the helicopter, the whole nine yards. So you drive there. You get there, you look over the edge, go, okay, let's go home. Wait, wait a minute, you put all this time and effort, all this planning to go to the Grand Canyon and now you just look at the hole in the ground and you go home? That's a contrast, isn't it? It, it? it doesn't really make sense, does it? All of Mark has been about going to Jerusalem. He gets there, he entered, went into the temple, looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany. He leaves. Why? Because he is in control. I've often thought about this. He goes to the temple and he looks around. Now Mark doesn't record for us, the Spirit doesn't give it, but, the, but don't you just kind of wonder, what's he thinking at that moment? Looking at the temple. What's he thinking? The other gospel accounts give us a key, don't they? Because the other gospel accounts carry this on and say, and he looked at Jerusalem and he wept. He sees the insincerity of man. He sees the cruelty of man. He sees man seeking to save himself by his own works, by his own righteousness. And it's sort of like, you can almost see him just shaking his head. Someday this will all come to an end. But not now. That's not the plan. I have to wait. There's another contrast in all of this. Now we kind of jump ahead throughout the whole week, but, but the triumphal entry brings it on because this begins that Passion Week. And we're going to see him forsaken. We're going to see him on that cross cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the contrast is, in John chapter 17, Jesus speaks about the love of the Father. How the Father loves him. And he loves him with an eternal love. That's forsaken. That's part of what this this week does, doesn't it? We, We see that forsakenness of Christ. Yet we know in the midst of his being forsaken is love. The 
love of the Father for his obedient son. Yet even, we, even as we sing, the Father turns his face away. Because of our sin. What a contrast. The sinless one is burdened and covered with my sin. So that the sinful one can be considered righteous before God. What a contrast this week brings. He's the one who dies and yet lives. Peter in his Pentecost sermon on Acts, in Acts chapter 2 displays this so beautifully. He killed him, he died, but God had another purpose. God foreordained that he would indeed rise and live again, that his Holy One would not see corruption. So we have this contrast that, that this week of Mark brings to us of death and life, forsaken and loved, entering and leaving a crowd dwindling, the meek accepting praise, the king coming gently. But there is one thing in our text this morning that really drew my attention. I want you to go back to it. Mark chapter 11, verse 3. Jesus is speaking. He's telling his disciples, go into the town, get the colt. And if anyone stops you, say to them, why are you doing this? Say. Now look at the contrast here. The Lord has need of it. Isn't that an amazing statement? The Lord has need. Why would the Lord need anything? He's the Lord. Now I know there, there's, we, we have here the, the technicality of the Greek word that's being used here, koreos, Lord, but the definition of that word in the Greek, is this. A person who exercises absolute ownership rights. And yet the Lord, who has absolute ownership rights, has need. The Lord has need of it. And of course, as we read this, we, we know what comes out of these people's mouths, and we know how this happens and takes place. But there is also certainly, in Jesus' words to the disciples, more than just saying, I, as a human Lord with absolute ownership rights over that animal, he is speaking of himself as the Lord, as the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I, as the sovereign entity of this world. I who create, I who have in the means by which this world is called into being, I have need of a donkey. I have need of an animal. What a contrast is presented to us. 
What does that contrast teach us? Well, two things, I think, for sure. One, that phrase, the Lord has need of it, reminds me of his humanity and the fullness of that humanity. The Lord God of heaven and earth does not need Bob Van Manen's praise. The Lord God of heaven and earth does not need Bob Van Manen's soul. The Lord God of heaven and earth has need of nothing. That's what it means to be Yahweh, the absolute all-sufficient one. And yet, Jesus says, the Lord has a need. In what sense could Almighty God have a need? In the sense that he is there amongst us and amongst this crowd and amongst his disciples as fully human. And we need that reminder. See, Mark is reminding us of that. He has been through the miracles. God's, the Jesus' power to restore sight to the blind, to raise the dead, to make the lame to walk, to drive out the demons, that glorious power of Jesus Christ. But here, what does Mark put on display for us? As we enter into this Passion Week of Jesus' life, what's there before us? We're met. The humanity Christ, that he had needs. Almighty God needed food. Almighty God needed drink. Almighty God needed rest. Almighty God needed sleep. Oh, the mystery of all of that is, 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 is mind-boggling to us. But that's the reality of what we confront here, of what God's Word reveals to us. The one of whom it said in the Psalms, a cattle on a thousand hills are his, says, I need that animal. He owns it all, and yet he says, I need that animal, his humanity. And so when we hear of him being forsaken, understand that hurt was real. Understand that when there's the betrayal of Peter, the hurt was real. Understand that the crown of thorns brought real pain. That the scourgings brought real pain. That there was real blood pouring out from him, from his wounds. And that he really did die. The Lord has need. But not only his humanity. His humility. See, this is beginning... It, 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 I, I shouldn't use the word beginning. It's the beginning of the Passion Week in which we see it evidenced. But we need to go back to that chapter 10 again. 
where we hear Jesus say again, after that request of James and John, verse 42, but it shall not be so amongst you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even the King, even the Sovereign, came not to be served, but to serve. The Lord has need of your animals. Oh, the humility of it. Could have created the animal. Could have said, let there be an animal for me to ride upon. Think of how the crowd would have been wowed by that. Think of the response of the crowd then. Did you see that? There was no animal. Now there's an animal. No, instead, he willingly subjects himself to having to say, the Lord has need. Because he came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life, the life of the king, rides into Jerusalem to his death. What lesson do you think that king of kings wants you and I to take away from that. James and John, <laughs> you're fighting about who's going to be the greatest. If you're going to fight, fight about who's going to be the slave of all. Father, humble us before the humble king. Help us, Father, again and again and again on a daily basis to realize it's not about us. It's not about being served. It's not about our way or the highway. It's about serving. It's about giving our lives for others. In the glorious name of our gentle, humble, sovereign King, we pray. And God's people say,